You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. to meet you. I'm Ant, uh, pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. Again, very uh, glad and excited that you chose to worship uh, with us this, moment, this morning. Uh, with the storm coming through, you had an excuse to stay at home. If you would have wanted to, I don't think anybody would have been mad at you with how cold it is. You still came. I appreciate that. Glad you're here worshiping uh, with us. We find ourselves uh, concluding our, what we call our Give series. If you've been with us through the holidays before, you know we do this pretty much every year where we look into the divine and sacrificial generosity of God that he came, he sent his son down to us to save us, save this world, save his creation from sin. And we, we see that as the greatest act of generosity that we've ever seen. And so we want to respond to that with generosity from ourselves as a response to what, what Christ has done. Generosity with our time, generosity with, with our energy, generosity with our love, generosity with our money and our finances. So uh, what we've recently been doing this year and last year is, is partnering with our Serve the City partnerships throughout the city. Uh, we've targeted six ministries and organizations that are serving really some of the more helpless and vulnerable people in our city. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about those later, but just want to let you know, I want to encourage you today with, with the sermon. Hopefully we'll sign up for our Serve the City weekend, which will be January 18th through the 21st. We do partner with these, with these Serve the City partnerships throughout the year. But we're going to have a Serve the City weekend where we're encouraging every one of our members to volunteer and serve with one of our Serve the City partners at that time. Again, January 18th through, 18th through the 21st. Give you a little bit more info about that as, when we conclude our, our time together today. If you want, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 25. Again, Matthew chapter 25. We'll be starting it in verse 31. If you want to go ahead and begin uh, turning there going to give you a heads up. This is a very difficult teaching from Jesus that we're going to be getting into today. Very difficult, very challenging, one that's very easy to resist against. I want to I just make sure we're, we're very clear. As a church, we talk about being Jesus-centered, specifically being a Jesus-centered family on mission. Part of being Jesus-centered means we, we submit to the Word of God, right? We, we hold it as authority over our lives, Oftentimes when Jesus talks in a provocative way, like the way he speaks in this specific passage, we, we, we want to bend and conform the word of God to fit our beliefs and desires, when really we should be bending and conforming ourselves and our beliefs to fit God's word. Right? We're in error when we try to bend and conform the word to fit us, to fit what we desire, that the appropriate response of the Christian is to look at the word of God. What, what is it saying? What, what, what is our Lord communicating to us if it's challenging, if we don't like it, we still submit to it. I feel like that was an appropriate disclaimer for what we'll be getting into today. This, this passage, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is in, the, is in the last days of his ministry before he died. This is likely the last three or four days before his, his crucifixion. He spends a good bit of time teaching about his second coming. So obviously he came, the first time is what we celebrate at Christmas time. He's, he's going to die, be resurrected, ascend to heaven, and come back again. He spends a lot of time in, in these last few days with his disciples talking about what it's going to be like when he returns. And it helps us understand what type of person will actually be, be saved in the coming judgment when he does return. He gives us great insight into what the Christian life looks like in this passage. Let's get into it. Start at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations. So Jesus is said in the context for what, about, what is about to happen. The Son of Man is one of the phrases Jesus uses to refer to himself. He's called the Son of God. He's also called the Son of Man as well. He's saying he's going to come back with all of his glory. All of his glory. See, the first time he came in, a lot of people slept on his power, slept on his divinity, slept on, on his majesty. He came humbly as a child, as a baby, right? Very meek, very humble, seemingly very vulnerable. A lot of people didn't acknowledge his lordship and his kingship when he came that way. The second time he comes, he's like, listen, there's going to be no mistaking who I am. He's coming in all of his glory. He's going to be sitting on his throne, right? There, there, there's, there's no misunderstanding about who he is and whether or not he is reigning and ruling over everything else. He says he's going to have all the angels of heaven with him. I don't know if you've ever been somewhere and you just came through with your whole team, with your whole squad, and you just felt like you could take on anything. Jesus is coming in with all the angels of heaven with him. He is sitting on his, on his throne, and it says that all the nations are going to be gathered before him. All the nations will sit and be gathered right in front of him in all of his glory on his throne with all the angels of heaven with him. He's not a baby anymore. He's coming back to make sure everyone understands he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Continue. We'll pick up in verse 32 where we left off. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. In the Bible, there are four biographies of Jesus's life. There are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. In the Gospels, sheep are referred to as the, as the genuine, legitimate children of God, the people of God, and the goats are referred to as those who look like sheep but aren't actually sheep. Those who look like they are Christians but they're not actually Christians. Those who in some way, shape, or form look like they are following Jesus when they actually are not. Goats represent those who might be around a fellowship or a body of believers, but, but haven't actually turned away from sin and placed faith in Jesus. If you don't have a trained eye, like a shepherd, if you saw a group of sheep together and goats walked in, you might not be able to tell the difference. When, when there are goats and sheep that are around each other, you oftentimes with an untrained eye can't tell the difference between the two. But Jesus is saying when he comes in all of his glory and he's sitting on his throne and he's got all the angels with him and all the nations are gathered right in front of him, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He is the great shepherd. His, his, his eye is trained. He can tell who is actually genuinely following him and he can tell who actually is not. He can tell who is actually a sheep and who is a pretend or who is pretending to actually follow him. His eye is trained. He knows who's been transformed by his spirit, and he knows who has not. And here he puts the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And here's what he says to the ones on the right, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He looks at the sheep. He looks at those who have come to trust him, come to believe in him, those who actually follow him, who have surrendered their lives, submitted to him as king. He says, come, come and receive what is yours. Come inherit the kingdom that was made for you before the world was created. This kingdom that was designed for you. You've been living in this place of darkness, in this broken world. Come inherit the kingdom that will be yours for all eternity, he says to his sheep. Now, he's going to get into some indicators of, of these sheep and what their lives actually look like that revealed that they are actually sheep. But I don't want to miss what he said to, to the sheep before he gets into the description of them. He says, you who are blessed by my father, 
And then he tells them to inherit the kingdom. You who are blessed by my father. See, when you inherit something, that's not something that you earned per se, right? And inheritance is usually something you receive after somebody in the family dies, right? He said, inherit the kingdom of God. He's he's saying to to the sheep that are right here, hey, receive what is yours because you're in the family now. See, you weren't originally in the family, but now that you're in the family, you get the inheritance that a child of God now receives. See, Jesus is the only begotten son of God. So he's saying, receive this blessing from my father, is what he said. You are blessed by my father. You You are now in the family. There's a theme in the New Testament in the Bible that, that says that Christians are in Christ. If you read the book of Ephesians, you'll see it a lot. Overall, it's, there's one translation that, that uses that phrase actually 75 times in the New Testament, that we are in Christ. It, it primarily means that the spiritual blessings that Christ deserves because we are in him and so connected with him that we receive what he deserves. We receive the spiritual blessings from the Father that Christ deserves. It, it's Christ's kingdom to inherit. He's the only begotten Son. He's the one who's supposed to inherit the kingdom. But those who have placed faith in him through no good works of our own, did we earn it? We receive the inheritance as sons and daughters of God the Father. That's important that we realize because we're going to get into some descriptions, and the way Jesus is going to say this might, might make you believe that he's saying that these, this group of people have earned their way into the kingdom. No, he says, inherit it. That means all you do is just receive what's been given to you as a gift. That means you, di- you didn't earn this kingdom. I'm not going to say that your good works is, is earned this for you, but rather you receive it as a child receives an inheritance from their father. Us being in Christ... We receive from Jesus his perfect relationship with the Father. We receive from him his perfect righteousness in the sight of God. We receive from him his sonship, and we have been born again into his family, and we receive his inheritance as a member of the kingdom of God that is going to reign and rule over all creation forever. Even though outside of Jesus, we have no right to it in and of ourselves. We, we, we have no merit that would earn this for us. Jesus says to the sheep, his followers, you're, you're, you're blessed of my father. Just receive this inheritance of the kingdom that you were not originally a part of. Now he goes on to explain the actions of the sheep and of the goats. But right before we read it, I just want to ask a question, present a question to us today. If you were to guess what Jesus would say is the distinguishing factor between the sheep and the goats, what would you think it was? Because he's going to come very specifically about one thing that says, this is what will allow me to realize whether this person is a sheep or whether this person is a goat, whether this person is actually a follower of mine or somebody who looks like they're a follower of mine. Just look at the the characteristics of of the sheep. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus is saying, I was in need. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you came to me. When I was in this place of need, you came to me. He's saying, you were there for me in those times when I needed someone to be there for me. And the righteous one responded probably the same way I would respond if Jesus said that to me. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? 
And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They're like, Jesus, we don't recall you being in any of these, any of these situations. When did we do this for you? Verse 40. And the king will answer him. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you did it for those who are socially seen as the least, you actually did it for me. This is the king, right? All of his glory, got the angels with him, sitting on the throne, all power and authority in his hand. And he's saying, no, I'm saying anytime you did it for, for, for one of these who are in need, you did it for me. Now, just to clarify, when he says, my brothers, there are many who believe in this passage he's only actually referring to when they did this for other believers. But as we'll see in a second, he's going to bring this, the least of these up again later in the passage. And he doesn't use the phrase, my brothers, at all. I, I, I certainly believe he's referring to when we have compassion on and meet the needs of other believers. But again, as we'll see later, it seems the scope is much broader than that, that he desires his people to have compassion on those who are in need. See, the stranger at that time is different from a stranger that you and I might meet. The stranger at that time was generally seen as, as someone who, who was not of Jewish heritage or, or background, right? Some, somebody who would have been a foreigner, maybe is a better way to say it, in the land. Someone who, who wouldn't possess land and oftentimes would, would need help from others in order to be able to survive and even thrive in the land that they were in. Those who are in need, they would have been seen as the least in the land of God's people at that time. I don't want us to miss Christ's compassion in this passage. I don't want us to miss how he identifies with the poor, with the lowly, the hurting, those who are in need. You have people in your life that you are so close to that if somebody does something good for them, you feel like they did something good for you. You have people in your life that if they are in need and somebody meets their need, you want to say thank you to them for meeting their need. Right? That's what love does when love bonds two people together in that way. You got people in your life where if somebody in your family is sick or in the hospital and somebody goes and visits them, you feel like they might as well have visited you because of how much a blessing it is to you. This is how Jesus says he relates to the lowly, to those in need. He's saying, when you visit them, you visited me. When you gave them food, you gave me food. When you gave them drink, you gave me drink because of how much I love and care for them, because of how connected I am to them. He says, when you put clothes on their back, I see it as if you put clothes on my back. This is the, the, the infinite compassion of the king. This is the infinite compassion of the one who in this passage is reigning with all glory and has the angels with him, but also came as a baby and was born in very meager and humble circumstances to a working class family who for part of his life as an adult was actually homeless. He says, I, I relate. I, I love those who are in need. I am near those who are in need. And when you are near them, when you care for them, when you welcome them, you're actually welcoming me. He feels as if it was done the same for him. This is the Lord of all creation. He created, I said this a few, a few weeks ago, I'll say it again today, it continues to, to blow my mind. Scientists today are, are estimating that there are about 100 billion galaxies in the universe and about 100 billion stars in every one of those galaxies. This is the Lord of creation who created every single one of those stars, all of the heavens, all of the earth. He created them. He is all-powerful. He is amazing. He says, I look to those in need, and I feel close to them. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26 reads like this. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, 
The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Do you know how easy it is for those who are in power and those who have extreme wealth to not give a second thought about the poor? Do you know how easy that is? Much less for Jesus, the, the, those who have, who have rebelled against him, who have turned against him, who have not desired him, who have not desired to follow him. He still says, I care for them such that if you care for them, you care for me. The God who created knows the names of every star in the universe. Looks low to the downtrodden. Oh, that we would care for the needy the way that he does. Oh, that we would be a church. Oh, that we would be a body of Christ, a kingdom of God that cares as much for those in need as our Savior does. That we would care for the thirsty, care for those who are sick. That we would love so deeply that we would be hurt by the pains of those who are struggling. That it would make our stomachs hurt that there are others who are going through life whose stomachs are empty. That it would pain us. And Jesus says, the way that you know, the way that you can tell a sheep is a sheep is by the way they love the needy, is what Jesus is saying. The way that you can tell a sheep is a sheep and not a goat is by the way that they love and care for those who are in need. Do they care enough about the needy to sacrifice the time, the money, the energy, the preferences? Listen, I'm sure the ones that he'll he'll talk to the goats in a minute, I'm sure they had a lot of good excuses. I'm sure they had a lot of good other things that they could have been doing instead of welcoming in the stranger, instead of feeding the hungry, instead of giving drink to the thirsty, instead of giving clothes to the naked. I'm sure there are a lot of other things that they could have been doing. I'm sure they're very busy people with a lot of important things on their schedule. Jesus is saying the ones that are sheep are the ones that care for those who are in need. Jesus, who was near the needy, not only does he feel cared for when the poor are taken care of, He also gets angry when the needy aren't taken care of. This passage, he gets increasingly provocative with with the way that he's talking. Let's pick it up back at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, these are the goats, right? He'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Here's the reason why. Starting in verse 42. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will, sorry, then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The same love that causes him to feel cared for when the poor are cared for causes him to feel anger when the poor are not cared for. It's the same thing. We have to understand what anger actually is. Anger is always a derivative of love. When you get angry, it's because something that you care about is threatened or destroyed or taken away from you. That's what makes you angry. Something that you care about tremendously. If if somebody tries to harm that thing, you're going to feel the anger rise up in you, right? There's no such thing as a loving person that doesn't get angry. 
That, that, that does not exist. If you truly love something deeply and something is threatening that thing, it will cause this, this anger, this fury to begin to rise up inside of you. Right? If you care for someone and someone is intentionally hurting that person, you're going to feel angry. But it, it works in a variety of ways. Right? I love to be right. So if you try to correct me, especially probably in front of a group of people, I'm going to feel some anger going on with that. Whether, whether our love is correct or incorrect, whether it's holy or sinful, whatever you love, when that thing is threatened or destroyed or taken away from you, you will be angry. Don't miss the compassion of Jesus in this. Don't miss the, the depths of his love in this as he, as he pronounces this judgment to those who did, not take, who did not take care of the poor. Understand, this is rooted deeply in love. I would say anger, the level and degree of anger is actually measured out by the level and degree of love. So if you're looking at this passage and you, and you don't understand why Jesus will be as angry as he is to do this thing, then you don't understand how much he loves. You don't understand the depth of his love for those who are in need, for those who are poor. Of course, if he cares so much about the poor that he will feel cared for, someone cares for them, of course he's going to be angry when they're not taken care of. Of course he's going to be angry when they're taken advantage of. Of course it's going to stir up anger inside of him. Because when someone threatens your people, when someone harms your people, it causes you to be angry. Yesterday, uh, last week, uh, there was a, a situation we had. There was a, a, a gentleman who was trying to get into the kid town area. Uh, I found out later there were no kids in the area, but he was trying to get to where, where we keep our kids, and we were pretty big on having security uh, there for our kids. So I saw him walking back through there, so I kind of had to loudly and aggressively, because I only had one shot. I had, I, I, he has to hear this one sentence, or he is going to a place where, he, where I, didn't, I didn't at least think he was able to go at that time. So I said, oh, no, sir, you got to stop. You can't go back there. Uh, that's where, we, that's where our, our, our kids' ministry is. And anyway, uh, he got a little bit upset. Uh, said a few words to me. It wasn't anything like threatening or whatever. He was just, he was just upset about it. Uh, that I, I guess I said it as forcefully as I did. And so he got a little bit angry. Uh, and Leslie, I wish she was in the room. Leslie was like, Aunt, I need to throw hands. Like, what we need to do? Like, I, do I, do I got to go get him? Right? What, 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 what do we got to do about this? Because he seemed like he a little bit angry, and I want to make sure we good, right? And it was like, she was, she was like, no, you, you don't come for the homies like that. This was uh, about, this was several months ago. I don't remember just how many. Uh, it was me, uh, Leslie and Courtney, we were uh, at a game, uh, at a powder puff football game that Nicole was playing in. She was playing the game, had about three or four catches, it did really well. Um, now, we're, we're watching the game, she's playing tight end, I think she's number 15, caught a pass over the middle, and somebody hit her. This is flag football, right? And somebody hit her, and she fell down, and immediately the three of us were like, who hit 15? Tim, was that you? Was that you? Was you the one that hit him? Try it again. Try it again. See what happened to you. Try it again. We ready. We ready. That's what I'm, yeah, that's how we roll. That's how we roll. I don't know what we would have done. Exactly. I don't know exactly what we would have done. We at least had to let them know that we was there and we was ready for whatever it came, whatever it came down to. There's a certain level of love and closeness that you can have with someone where if someone harms that person, now they got a problem with you. If someone is a threat to that person, then now they, they have a problem with you now. And we're going to deal with whatever we got to deal with on site. You can turn the most calm and gentle person into a, a furious, into a fighter by messing with their people. 
You can turn a, a calm and gentle, a loving person into a fighter by messing with the ones that they care about the most. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I love the poor so much that if you are not taking care of them, you now have a problem with me. And I now have a problem with you, more importantly. This anger from God is beautiful. It's beautiful. It shows that he deeply loves and cares about those that many would look over that he doesn't forget those that are forgotten by many others, that he passionately cares about you specifically in all of your hurt and all of your pain and all of your need. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords that is in command of heaven and earth in all of his glory is able and willing to see the least of these as his people. Oftentimes we, enjoy, we don't enjoy passages in the Bible about God's anger. Oftentimes, we don't, we don't want to look at those. We want to, we want to read quickly over those. We definitely don't want anybody to preach about it on Sunday. But we need, hear this, we need a God who is angry. You can't trust a God who can't get angry at somebody. You can't trust him. You can't trust his love. You can't trust his concern if he doesn't get angry when his people are not taken care of. You can't trust him. We need a God who is loving enough to be angry. The, the poor, the vulnerable, the suffering need a God who gets angry when, he, when they are not taken care of. And as a result of that, as a result of this truth about him for how close and near and, and loving he is towards those who are in need, the main point I will say of this passage is that Jesus is saying a person who does not care for those in need is not a Christian. That's what he's saying. This is such a part of who he is. He's saying, you're not following me if you're not doing this because this is what I'm doing. You, you don't have my love in you if you are not loving those who are in need is what he is saying. Heavy words that Jesus brings. Saying the one who, who looks like a Christian but doesn't care for the poor and the needy, he's saying they're not a Christian, they're not a sheep, they're a goat. Tim Keller has a quote. He says, over and over and over again, the Bible is clear. God says, if you don't love the poor, you don't love me. You're not a righteous person if you look at your possessions like they just belong to you, he says. The Bible doesn't have a category for a Christian who is not compassionate. It doesn't have a category for it. To say it another way, an uncompassionate, ungenerous Christian is an oxymoron. James chapter 2 goes in even more deeply. We'll start at verse 14, read through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him is the question. So that's a rhetorical question. He spends the rest of this passage answering that question. Continue verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Jump down to verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. 
want to be very clear about a point I made a little bit earlier. We're saved by God's, grace through, by God's grace through placing faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he's doing and what he is going to do. Our works do not save us. But here the point that James is making in James chapter 2, that saving faith is always accompanied by works. If not, it's dead. If not, the, the faith that you have is not a living and active faith. It's, it's, a, it's a dead faith if it does not change us in some way. That's what James is saying. In week one of this, week one of this series, we talked about how not, not having care for the poor, not being merciful to those who are in need, means that we're not living the way that God calls us to live. We're not living the way that's consistent with our God and with our Savior. And today, Jesus is saying it even stronger. And today, saying that if you don't care for the needy, if you don't care for the hurting, for the poor, for the sick, for the imprisoned, for the, the stranger, saying you need to repent from your sin and place faith in Jesus. You need to turn away from a life of rebellion against the God who cares for those who are in need and turn to follow him and submit to him. Ultimately, you need to understand that you are in need spiritually with no chance of helping yourself. You need to understand that you were dead in your sins, that you were enslaved and impressed by sin, that sin had mastery and control over you, that you had no way out of your own situation on your own. And Jesus came to earth to rescue you and free you from your slavery to sin. Your, your, your very spiritual life depended on someone seeing, in you, seeing you in need and coming to rescue you and serve you and bless you in your need. You need to receive the depths of his love that he showed you when he died for you, when you were in need of him to do so. You need to grasp just how gracious he was to us when he saw our sin, put it on himself and died on the cross and was condemned in our place because of our need. We need to see him and surrender our hearts and lives to him. If there's anyone in the room and you're here and you're, and you're saying, I don't, I don't know if I have that love for, for the needy, you, you need to see the need that you have spiritually, and you need to see the depths of the love of our Savior. And turn away from a life of sin and turn to him. And turn away from rebellion against the God who cares for those who are in need and turn to him. We need to sit and think about this for a second. Oftentimes when Jesus says things this challenging... We want to say stuff like, well, he didn't really mean that. That's not really what he means. What he really meant was, it's good if we care for those who are in need. That's what he's really trying to say. He's just trying to say, hey, it would be better for everybody if we all just cared for those who are in need. That's not what he's saying. Remember, we, we, as, a, as a church, being Jesus-centered, we don't respond to the Bible by trying to bend what the Bible says to, to conform it to fit us and fit what's comfortable for us. No, no, we bend and shape our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit to submit to what the Bible has to say to us. The Bible is our final authority. Jesus, the living, breathing Word of God, He is our authority. We seek to understand what it says. We submit to it. We don't try to tame Jesus to fit our preferences. There's a lot of that going on, right? A lot of people want to make Jesus into, into what we want him to be. We want to tame the lion of Judah, as the Bible calls him. We want to tame him so that, so that when he talks, it, it doesn't hit us as hard as it actually should. No, sit with this. 
Deal with this passage. Deal with the truth that he is saying. This is the king talking in all of his glory, sitting on his throne with all the angels there with him, with all the nations gathered right there before him. He's saying, no, the ones who are truly mine care about those who are in need. You don't change the king's decrees. You don't change his proclamations. You don't change what he says. This is the king telling us what his followers actually look like. Don't try to tame him. Don't try to lessen his roar. Humbly submit. Humbly allow, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, ourselves to be changed as we see how deep his love actually is for those who are in need. Starting with his love for us, his love for you when you were in need. When he says that his real followers love the poor and the needy, we submit to that and examine ourselves accordingly. Because how can you be a follower of Jesus, the one who loves the poor, the one that is offended when the poor aren't cared for if we don't care about them? We can't go on believing a lot of just because we were in a service someday and we came and, and said a specific prayer that that means that we're actually followers of Jesus. We can't believe that just because we said something and confessed something with our mouths, that that alone means that we're actually followers of Jesus. Jesus says, no, there's ways that you will actually be able to tell if my love is actually taking root in your heart, if the Holy Spirit has actually transformed who you are. The question is not, have we asked Jesus to come into our hearts? The question is, have we first experience the grace, the, the grace from him that melts our hearts, but also the power from him that transforms us and makes us new and continues to shape us to look more and more like him. For some of us, one of the difficulties that we face is that this is partially because of our life choices, partially because our society has set us up to actually live this way. But part of the difficulty that we face is for many of us, we're actually very rarely around people who are in need. Our society is set up such that oftentimes those who have adequate or, or even overflowing with resources don't cross paths very frequently in, in consistent ways with those who are poor. Our society has set it up that way. A lot of it is because of Proximity, that's one of the reasons that our Serve the City partnerships are so good for you. If I just described your life, that is one of the reasons that our Serve the City partnerships is so good for you. We partner with people, ministries, organizations that are doing a good job serving the poor and the marginalized. Because, hey, I get it. You're walking around, maybe you're with your family, maybe you're by yourself, and someone comes to you who seems to be homeless or seems to be in need, and they ask you for money, right? And you say, I don't want to give them money because I don't know if they're going to buy alcohol with it. I don't know if they're going to buy drugs with it. I don't know exactly what to do. And I understand that. And oftentimes, that is a very wise way to look at it. But if that's your stance, and at the same time, when we have opportunities, through our Serve the City projects, for you to serve those who are in need, and you don't go just because you don't feel like it? The problem isn't your proximity. The problem is your heart. The problem isn't that you aren't close enough to those who are in need. The problem is that you choose to prioritize other things more than caring for those who are in need. We have opportunities for all of us on an ongoing basis. We talk about our Service City weekend that we're having in January. We'll have opportunities for the next year, every month, for us to serve with our Service City partnerships. Will we hide behind the excuse that I have other things to do, that I don't feel like it, that I'm not around those who are in need, that oh, I don't know because if I help, maybe it's actually maybe just enabling people to do something that isn't actually good for them. Will we hide behind excuses 
Or will we serve? Or will we look like our Savior? Or will we demonstrate the transformed hearts that He has given us? This is part of the reason we set up the Service City Partnerships the way that we did. Because we wanted to be faithful. We wanted to serve in the most helpful of ways. I'll spotlight one of them, Ezekiel Ministries, that serves young people and youth right in this area that we are currently in. It's consistently looking for volunteers and people to help out with what they're doing. And they are one of our partners doing ministry on the same neighborhoods, on the same streets that we're doing ministry in. Let's overwhelm them with the support. Let's overwhelm them with the financial generosity that we give through the Serve the City Partnership. Let's overwhelm them with the volunteer hours that we put into serving those who are in need. Just heard recently from another one of our Serve the City Partners from Epworth Children's Home who has uh, children who have been removed from their families, orphans, orphans in our city. They are consistently looking for people to tutor and mentor, specifically more so mentor, I would say, the children that are there that have been taken away from their families for whatever reason. What an unbelievable way to be near those who are in need. To be near those who in and of themselves don't have anything oftentimes except for what is provided for them by others. Don't just refuse to sign up because you don't feel like it. Don't refuse to go serve just because it doesn't fit perfectly in your schedule. I understand there's things like work that we have to do and, and things like that. And sometimes things come up with our families. I understand all of that. I'm saying, but don't let it be just because you don't feel like it. May we live like the sheep that he has made us to be. For some of you, God-glorifying repentance looks like you put in your life group, hey, when are we signing up? What are we signing up for? What are we going to do? How are we going to go serve? Provides accountability and it grows you in fellowship as you serve together. We serve the God who stepped down from the highest of heavens to meet our biggest need. We serve a God who, who was near to us when we were in need. Even when we were rebelling against him, he came and made himself near to us. When we were spiritually hungry, he fed us with the bread of life. When we were spiritually thirsty, he brought us his living water. When we were strangers to him and alienated from God and even enemies of God, he came to us and welcomed us into his family. When we were naked spiritually, he clothed us with his righteousness. When we were sick with sin, he healed our souls he healed our spirits when we were in bondage and in prison to sin. He came and set the captives free. This is what we celebrate with Christmas, that he saw our need and he came. He could have busied himself with all of his creation. He could have just sat back and, and marveled at all of his creation and left us alone because we rebelled against him. But he said, no, I am going to them. I'm going to meet their need, and they are going to be with me in my family, in my kingdom forever. And they will be sheep in my family that used to be goats. There are going to be sheep who are in my family who don't deserve to be the sheep that are in my kingdom, but I'm going to welcome them in because I saw them in their need. That's who we worship. This is the God we serve. This is the God that we follow, the God that we proclaim, responding to our biggest need because he loves us. May we also be a church that responds to the needs of the hungry, of the thirsty, of the naked, the sick, and in prison. May we be the church that responds to the needs of others the way that our God has responded to us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you today for how you responded to our need. We thank you 
today because when you saw us, you didn't, you didn't allow yourself to just sit back and to just stay away and let us figure this thing out on our own, but you came to us. And it was risky and it was painful and it cost you so much and you continued on. And you stayed the course. And you made us your own. And you welcomed us into your family and you set us free. God, make us a people who model that, who demonstrate your love to all that we come in contact with. God, make us a people that love those in need the way that you do. God, if there's anyone in the room who is in need of just repentance, if there's anyone in the room whom your word has, has cut open and revealed that they actually don't know you and actually don't follow you, Father, would you, will you grant them faith and repentance in you right now in this room today that they will surrender, that their heart of stone would, would be made soft into a heart of flesh? Father, would you grant us the joy of repentance? the joy of surrender to a good and holy, righteous king, the joy of realizing that living my way isn't the way that I should live, but I should actually follow you. Father, would you grow us in our love for those who are in need? Father, that when we see how many in our communities are are homeless or who are going without, that it will burden us, God, that it would cause us pain to see it, that we would hurt, understanding that you hurt with those who are hurting that you hurt with us in our hurt because you are the compassionate one. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.